Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When the disciples walked with Jesus during his three-year ministry here on earth, they walked in the real world. And part of the real world for them as Jews would have been to uh, commemorate the Jewish religious uh, observances. And there were actually seven of those, seven religious feasts which God gave to his people that they should um, commemorate and observe each year. So during those three years, Jesus and his disciples would have obediently uh, commemorated those seven feasts of the Lord. So we're going to start looking into what those feasts were and what they meant, what they were all about. And this episode is going to be just an overview of all seven of those. We're also going to do a little housekeeping in this episode. We're going to answer some questions about the sacrificial lamb, about Bethlehem, and about cows. That's what this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study is all about. There were a few things that I felt like we needed to do a little housekeeping on that were kind of left over from our Advent time with both the series of Mary, Did You Know? What Did She Know? And then our our really difficult Christmas quiz, which I think you guys did okay on. I don't know. But uh, so there were a few things I had written down that I wanted to get back to because we kind of left them kind of, oh, really? Maybe? That's interesting. Is that true or not? So I've had a couple of weeks now to kind of uh, do some research and drill down on a few of them. So I wanted to just do this housekeeping so that we can um, move forward with a clean slate now as we start a new, a new series of things. So one of them was when we were talking about Mary, did you know? One of the questions was, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would be heaven's perfect lamb? And we said that, you know, in the sacrificial system of the Jewish religion uh, in the time of Jesus, uh, that there was a lamb who would be which would be sacrificed. And that lamb needed to be a male and needed to be unblemished. And someone in the class asked, does that lamb also have to be the firstborn lamb? And I said at the time, I don't think so. And But that just didn't sit well with me because I wasn't sure. And then I saw something on The Chosen, which led me to believe, like, okay, I must be wrong about that. I must have been wrong because they kind of intimated the same thing. But So I went and I started doing some research myself in the Old Testament, and I could not find anything that said that it had to be the firstborn male lamb. All I could find was that male lamb, unblemished, about a year old. So, uh, not being an authority on this, I decided to ask someone who, was an, who is an authority, and uh, this is the response I got from them. This is from the adject professor of Old Testament from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, 
PhD, her name is Christine Palmer. <laughs> so she knows. As a matter of fact, she's writing a, a, a commentary right now on the book of Leviticus. So that's, that's where all this is, all of this is in Leviticus. So my question to her was that, you know, this is the question that came up. I can't find anything in my own research that says that it has to be anything other than those things, male, year old, unblemished. Am I missing something? Is there something somewhere else in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that says firstborn as well? So this is her response. She goes, there is no scriptural requirement for the lamb to be the firstborn. Sacrificial lambs had to be whole and unblemished. Sacrificial lambs were most often male, except in the case, which is something I didn't know, except in the case of the fellowship offering, where a female animal from the herd or flock could also be given. This sacrifice is not for atonement, forgiveness, but for fellowship and thanksgiving. So in the spirit of a spontaneous and joyous offering, the worshiper is given the freedom of choice over the sacrifice he will offer. Probably the question of it being a firstborn lamb may have come from the Passover lamb redeeming the firstborn. But it's not but it's the blood that makes atonement, not the one-to-one correspondence of lamb to person. So, uh, no, the answer is the lamb who is used in sacrifice does not need to be the firstborn lamb. So, that's good to know. The second thing that was uh, put out there during our um, time, I think it might have been during our Christmas quiz, was that there couldn't have been any cows at the manger because there were no cows in Israel at that time. And uh, so... I just let that go because the person who said it was so sure of it. And um, I wasn't sure. I mean, I should have been. I should have thought it through. But on the spur of the moment, I, I couldn't. But there are three other pastors in this class who also didn't say anything. So I don't feel so bad about it. Not to put any of you on the spot who might be. <laughs> and we also have an elder of the church who said nothing at the time. So... <laughs> So, so, I, so I don't feel so bad at the moment of not having, but so, uh, but of course there were cows at during the time because uh, cows and bulls were used in sacrifices. Uh, they worshipped the golden calf, so they had to have something to which to base that. Uh, but you know. At the time, it was, you know, I had a hard time standing up for, for that. But, but, but Mike has, but Mike sent me this article from Biblical Archaeology, Biblical, okay, Biblical Archaeology Society. And, or Biblical Archaeology Review, B-A-S, okay. no, B-A-S, B-A-S, yeah. So it's, it's based on Biblical Archaeology. And the, believe it or not, there's an article in there this past month about cattle. <laughs> God provides. So this is what it says. It says, it's under biblical bestiary is the category. Across the ancient Near East, domesticated taurine cattle were valued sources of of agricultural labor and sustenance, essential in the so-called Neolithic Revolution, which saw the transition of human society from nomadic hunter-gatherers to sedentary farming communities Cattle were first domesticated in the Fertile Crescents more than 10,000 years ago. Beef was consumed much less than goats or sheep in the ancient Near East, and cattle were more useful for transportation, agricultural labor, and as a source of milk. If the ass was the light pickup truck of the day, used to carry loads on its back, then the ox was the heavy-duty truck and tractor, good for pulling wagons and plowing, As draft animals, oxen worked also at threshing floors. Uh, Cult images of cattle were worshipped and live animals sacrificed in a number of ancient religions. The early Israelites reportedly worshipped a golden calf. Calves were given as fire offerings at the temple and ashes of an unblemished red cow or heifer. And that's something that's real important, this red heifer, this idea of the red heifer. it's something that we're going to be looking at. The next session we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the Feast of the Lord, I think, for a few weeks. And um, this red heifer, the red heifer had to be sacrificed, had to be an unblemished red cow 
and the ashes of which were used to purify uh, things that, that purify the altar and purify different things. And so uh, there is actually, and we'll talk about this later too, there's actually a movement in Israel today to bring back the sacrificial system. But before they can do that, they have to have a perfect red heifer to, uh, to, to you know, make everything cleanse, to cleanse everything that they're going to be using for this um, sacrifice. And so there is a push on now from farmers and so forth in Israel to be able to breed this. They're trying to breed this red heifer that will be acceptable. So anyway, that's an interesting thing. Um, so uh, the ashes of an unblemished red cow were mixed with water to purify a person exposed to a human corpse, as an example. According to the Hebrew Bible, an ox and an ass were not supposed to be yoked together on the plow, but the two animals appear shoulder to shoulder in one of the most iconic scenes of the Christian tradition, the nativity. Their inclusion is due to the Christian appropriation of Isaiah 1-3. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Early Christian fathers read these words as a prophecy about a new people, the church, who would understand and recognize their Lord, the wondrous child born in Bethlehem. The Kreich imagery with the ass and ox leaning over the newborn Jesus was sealed by St. Francis of Assisi, who staged the first live nativity in 1223. So, there were cows. Uh, available to be at the manger. I don't know that they, we don't know that they were definitely there, but they could have been there because there were cows in Israel at the time. So that's number two. The third one and the last one uh, is interesting because uh, someone had said that, um, you know, when the wise men went, uh, arrived in Jerusalem and went to Herod, they wanted to know, where is the baby? Where is, the, where is this new king? Where is he? And so Herod brought together his men and wise men and so forth, and they determined that it was he was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so someone said in the class, that, and, and that, and that uh, prophecy is from, as a matter of fact, we can look it up, uh, it's from Micah. It says... Um, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you uh, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this is from um, Micah 5, 2. This is where this prophecy comes from. So someone said that they had heard um, through uh, David Jeremiah uh, that this prophecy was given by Micah before Bethlehem even existed. So that Micah was saying that the Messiah, the king, would be born in Bethlehem before there ever was a Bethlehem. So, uh, and that person said it also matter-of-factly, and I was not going to take issue, nor with any of the other three pastors or the elder, (laughs) with David Jeremiah, because if that is the source, then of course it's right. Uh, But there must have been some misunderstanding, because I went back, and uh, Mike helped me with this to bring this to my attention. Um, Micah prophesied around 700 B.C., 742 to 687 was about his life when he lived. So in the 700-ish is when he would have given this prophecy, 700 B.C. Bethlehem, however, was founded in 1400 B.C. So uh, the prophecy that Micah gave in 700 B.C., at that point, Bethlehem had already been existed for 700 years. So there was, must have been some misunderstanding. So when Micah gave that uh, prophecy that the uh, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem was in existence. But I, wanted, I found something interesting. So I wanted, you might want to look at this too, about the, the founding of Bethlehem. So if you, if you want to look in your Bibles, 1 Chronicles 
is where this is found. And it's First Chronicles chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to start chapter 2, verse, uh, we'll start verse 1. It says, these were the sons of Israel. Uh, this is Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These were the sons of Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So then it goes on to uh, Judah. From the line of Judah, uh, we have the sons of Judah, verse 3, the sons of Judah. Er, Onan, and Shelah, these three were born to him by a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, bore him Perez and Zerah. Judah had five sons in all. Verse 5, the sons of Perez, so we have Jacob, Judah, Perez, the sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamel. Okay, so now we have Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron. Now skip over to verse 18. Caleb, son of Hezron, had children by his wife, Azuba, and by Jerioth. These were her sons, Jeshur, Shobab, and Ardon. When Azuba died, Caleb married Ephrath, Ephrath, does that sound familiar to you? Ephrath? Bethlehem Ephrathah? Married Ephrath, who bore him her. So we have Judah, we have uh, Perez, we have Hezron, now we have Caleb, and now we have her. Okay, all the descendants from Judah. And and her, uh, his uh, mother is Ephrath. Okay, go over now, skip over to verse um, 50. These were the descendants of Caleb. The sons of Hur, okay, this is Caleb's, Caleb's son, Hur. The sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrath, Shobal the father of Keith, Kiriath, Jerim. And then verse 51, Salma, Salma, the father of Bethlehem. So Salma founded Bethlehem. This was the descendant of Judah. This is, you know, David is a descendant. David is a tribe of Judah. This all comes. And so the, the son of Hur, who was the son of Caleb, all the way back to the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, this Salma, Salma, founded Bethlehem. And his mother was Ephrath. So that's why it's called Bethlehem Ephrathah. And it was founded by uh, the tribe of Judah by this man Salma. Salma. And so uh, we know we we know that Hezron died about 1580 ish, 1586 BC, and then you know he had Caleb who had her who had Salma. So the different and, and if Bethlehem was founded in 1400 BC, that's the difference of about a, from Hezron's death to the founding of Bethlehem about 186 years. With three generations, that works out to be about right mathematically. So now, I had in my notes for Micah that that was the oldest prophet, and that was 900 BC. Well, even, even still, even but it's still covered. even yeah. still, you're still covered if, if Bethlehem was 1400. Yeah. I thought that so. Was yeah. <laughs> well, you're saying it with such conviction, I'm not going to question it. <laughs> no, 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 you can question. No, no, but uh, you know, it still covers it. That's it still covers it. And when you get back to all those numbers, some of them are, you know, best guesses in some cases. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, so those are the three things. Um, lambs did not have to be firstborn. Uh, there were cows in, uh, in Israel during the time uh, of uh, Jesus' birth, and uh, Bethlehem did exist when that uh, prophecy was made, uh, that that's where Jesus would be born. So. I'm glad to hear that because I was putting away my nativity set and I thought, can I can throw these cows? And that's why it's important to do the housekeeping so that you don't have to. I set my nativity, I forgot the wise one. 
<laughs> they weren't really there. You should put them in an epiphany. I would uh, throw one monkey wrench in. Oh. 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 When they said 10,000 years, I'd say it couldn't have been more than 6,000. That's when God created the animals. Yeah, again, those are all numbers that are, right. you know, sometimes hard to rectify for Not everyone. Really. So. Those are all things we. Those are all things we agree to disagree on. You know, even the experts, as as it were. So. Amen. Amen. <laughs> no, exactly. We won't care. So, uh, I thought you know, we since we had this discussion about the sacrificial system during the study in Advent with Mary, did you know? I thought. You know, this might be a chance for us to all learn something about the way the sacrificial system worked back in uh, ancient Israel. And uh, I'm, I'm no Jewish scholar. Uh, I only know what I learn as I study it. Uh, we do have some Jewish scholars in this church, obviously, with David and, and Christine. Uh, but I thought, uh, I would like to learn about this, uh, learn more about uh, how the sacrificial system worked in ancient uh, Israel and uh, during the time of Jesus especially or in, even in the Old Testament. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, we have a few weeks between now and Lent. Uh, about, I think I count about eight weeks. And I don't know that we use them all, but um, I thought maybe we'll use this time between now and Lent to look into this, uh, this topic uh, about the 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 sacrificial system and and the different uh, times that this was this occurred um, in 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 ancient Israel and so I understand I'm learning this too with you and so what I'm learning I'm going to share with you and uh, we can all learn together and um, I found already this to be very interesting so uh, just as some background as some uh, context. Um, there are, uh, of course, all kinds of holidays. I mean, most of the sacrifices and sacrificial system that were significant for all the people of Israel and all the Jewish people were centered around certain feasts that they all observed as a nation. And uh, so it made me start thinking about, you know, um, we all have, and now those are looked at as, as holidays, you know, as Jewish holidays, as we call them. And um, it made me start thinking about you know, just holidays in general, and that uh, as I looked into it, um, every nation in the world has holidays that they observe, and some more, some less, and all holidays. You look in our own country, you know, we have certain holidays for the founding of our nation. We have holidays for uh, memorializing uh, wars. Um, we have uh, religious uh, holidays. We have holidays of, to rest, like Labor Day. It's just a day to kind of rest for labor. And 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 so this is just not unique to us. All countries, all and even all down through history. All these nations have all of these holidays, and you know uh, it seems like we're adding them all the time now. You know, I think uh, tomorrow I think is Martin Luther King Day, and when I was a kid, you know, obviously there was no such holiday, and then it got on the calendar, and and it was just kind of on the calendar for a few years, and now it actually is for many people a holiday where they don't work. You know, a number of companies uh, have this as a holiday for people, so it seems like we're adding holidays all the time. When I went into research, um, you know, the holidays in the Bible that God instituted for his people, um, they're called feasts. You know, they're, they're, all, they're all kind of called feasts. Feasts of the Lord is how they're referred to. And there are seven. There are seven of those. Seven holidays, seven feasts that God gave to his people to observe as a nation and as a people. 
And uh, the, the word feasts in Hebrew is translated as appointed times. That's an important thing to remember. They're appointed times. These are times not appointed by man. These are times appointed by God for his people. So their feasts, their holidays, but they weren't just made up. They were given to the Jewish people as to God's people by God as appointed times. Appointed. What's an appointment? Appointment means you got to be somewhere at a certain time to do a certain thing. I hate them. <laughs> I don't like appointments. I, I don't want to have to be somewhere at a certain time. I just want to like free flow. <laughs> but, you know, you have an appointed time. You have a doctor's appointment. You have to be there. You have a dentist appointment. You have to be there. You have an appointment for business. You have to be there. And so that's what these are. These are times that God said to his people, I want you to be here at these times, at these days, during doing these things. So, uh, the seven feasts or appointed times are divided into two categories. There are the spring feasts and the fall feasts. There are seven altogether. Four of them are spring. Three of them are fall. And kind of the reason that this naturally occurred as spring and fall is that, you know, the people of ancient Israel were agricultural people. It was an agricultural society. And so a lot of their life revolved around agriculture, farming and so forth, planting and harvesting. So the two most important times of year for a farmer in agricultural society are the times you plant and the times you reap, the, the, the planting time and the harvest time. And so that is how God kind of made his appointed time. Times four in the spring for planting time, and then uh, three in the fall for uh, harvest. Now, for us as Christians, we can look at the first four feasts, the spring feasts, as historical in nature, that they all point to Jesus as the Messiah. Those first four feasts are. are announcing Jesus, the Messiah's coming, his first coming. And so we can see in those, and we'll do this as we go along, um, we can see through these feasts as Christians symbols for Christ, and they apply to him and his life and his ministry. Those are the first four spring feasts. The last three feasts in the fall are even for us future future in, in symbolism. These have more to do with Jesus' second coming. So the, the spring feasts are Jesus' first coming oriented to that, and then the three fall feasts are more for Jesus' second coming and what's going to happen in the future. So I also, before I launch into specific feasts, wanted to get, just take a minute because it's significant that when God gave appointed times to his people that he chose seven. Because seven is an important number throughout the Bible. And so I thought I'd take a minute to just kind of go over a few of the things where seven comes up in Scripture. And, of course, the first would be in creation, right? That God created the universe, the earth, in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And the idea of resting there is not that Jesus was, not that God was worn out from creation and Christ was tired. He said, I just can't, I can't lift, I can't lift, I can't create one more thing. That No, but the idea there of resting is that it was completed. He, it was done. There was nothing more to do. He had done everything that needed to be done. And so on the seventh day, it was just a day to kind of sit back and say, this is good and it's completed and it's finished. And that was on the seventh day. From that, of course, then we get the Sabbath, right? The seventh day of rest for man. And that is for us to be a day of rest and a day of a day set aside to worship the Lord and a day to rest from our uh, our work. And, um, uh, you know, today it's rare that people rest on the Sabbath, uh, especially so many people work on Sundays now. And uh, I have to tip my hat to Chick-fil-A because they don't work on Sunday, and that's kind of unique. Um, but 
you know, back in the day, more and more places were closed on Sunday. And now, of course, it is not the way. Um, I remember when my grandmother passed away that uh, they had needed something at the funeral home on Sunday before her funeral. And her favorite store was closed on Sunday. It's a small town in West Virginia. But we were able to contact the owner at home and say, can we get in there today? We just want to get her a special dress to have and that kind of thing. And they were, they were willing to do it. But generally speaking, they were closed on Sunday. So that's important. The seventh day, God resting. The seventh day, the Sabbath for us to rest was, um, uh, you know, a part of what God told us we should do, told his people that they should do. Um, I know for myself, I have the kind of job that I could work 24-7 my job, my job is never done, and uh, I could work on Sunday, but I have chosen not to work on Sunday. Sometimes it's hard to not work on Sunday because you think, you know, you have a project that's up in the air, you have a, a problem with a, something, or there's something going on. And I work a lot with people overseas, and they're a day ahead of us. So my Sunday is their Monday. They're working right now, and I'm not. And so sometimes I'm tempted just to, and it's so easy, right? Just pick up the phone, just check your email. And I've decided, no, I'm not going to work my secular job on Sunday. I'm just not going to do it. Whatever happens, God will take care of on Monday. Uh, but that's not everyone has that option. Some people have no choice. Um, but that that but you get the idea. The seventh thing. Okay. Uh, also in farming, we talked about the agricultural system at the time. Uh, God told his people that they needed to rest their land on the seventh year so they could farm for six years in a row a certain part of parcel of land. But on the seventh year, they had to not farm it to let it rest, to let the land rest. And what they would do is they would they would divide if people who were had farms at the time, you know, they would divide their prop divide their property up into you know, patches, and so they would rotate. Like, this one is resting this year, but these are not resting. And then this one will rest the next year, and these are... So they would still have farm, they would still have crops, but they didn't rest their whole land, but they would rest parts of their land, and that's how they they decided they could do it. But but God told them there needed to be a Sabbath rest for the earth as well, and for the, for the soil, for their property. And then there were the seven... One of the ways that uh, ancient Israel marked their time was in the seven sevens of years. Seven sevens of years. Seven sevens is 49 years. So they would do their normal thing for 49 years, seven sevens of years. And then on the 50th year, that was to be, it's in the Bible, in the Old Testament, a year of Jubilee that they called it. On the year of Jubilee, on the 50th year, every 50th year, 49 years, you do your work. On the 50th year, that's a special year. That's the year of Jubilee. Then you do 49 more years, and a 50th year, another year of Jubilee. What happened on the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee, you forgave people their debts, and you let your slaves go free. So guess what was really never, ever celebrated or commemorated or observed? Almost ne never, ever, even though God says to do it, they really never really did the year of Jubilee. You know, because they just couldn't see, I'm going to forgive my debts. I'm going to let my slaves go free. That doesn't make any sense. And so they kind of ignored that, actually. But it's there, and it's what they were supposed to do. So, And then in the book of Revelation, in the book, in the book of Revelation, the number seven is mentioned uh, more than 50 times. And and all the, the future... Uh, things that are going to happen, especially when it comes to God dealing with people who are not believers, are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, all of which are various kinds of punishments on the world. And so it's all it all revolves around the number seven. So the number seven is significant in Scripture and significant for believers, and it, it is it is God's number. You know, you talk about. Six is the number of man. That's why 666 is the number for Antichrist. But seven is the number for God. Seven is the number of perfection and completion and satisfaction and contentment and everything else. So, so when God chose to give appointed times to his people, 
Well, he chose seven. Of course he would, right? And so that's why there are seven feasts. So let's look at these seven feasts. I'm going to give them to you in kind of the order. Now, there was a, a religious year and a civil year in ancient Israel. And so the religious year would start in April or May, which is known as the month of Nisan in um, in the in the Hebrew language, and that would begin uh, in April or May. That would be the beginning of the beginning of the new year of the religious year. But the civil year would start really in the fall. So uh, with like Rosh Hashanah and those uh, Rosh Hashanah actually means like head of the year. So it's the that is the first of their civil year. So there are two like new years for ancient Israel. There's a religious new year. There's a civil new year. Um, it's not unlike those of you who are in businesses or have been involved with business. It's not so much today, but it used to be there was a uh, uh, there was you know the calendar year. Then there was also like the fiscal year, and a lot of businesses their fiscal year would end in June 30th. And a new fiscal year would start July 1st. My company used to be like that. The, the company's books would end on June 30th, and a new year would begin on July 1st. It makes no sense, but I guess there was a reason they did that. But there was a fiscal year, but that wasn't the calendar year. The calendar year, obviously, is you know January 1st. So this is the way things were then. So I'm going to go and order these religious feasts, these appointed times, uh, in order of the religious calendar, so the first of the first um, feast would be then Passover. That happens in the spring. Uh, it happens on the 14th day of Nisan. Now the Israelites, had, the Jewish people, believers in ancient ancient Israel, their calendar was based on the lunar year. Uh, not like we have today. Obviously, they have the same calendar we have. So, based on the lunar year, the uh, the month of Nisan would happen in March, March and April, March or April of what we today know as March or April. But it was the 14th day of Nisan that the Passover would be um, observed, and uh, it of course involved the Passover lamb uh, and the sacrifice of the lamb. And we'll go over that story here in a little bit, but uh, it, it there was only one Passover. So people say, you know, Passover, Passover, Passover. Everything after the original is just a memorial to the first one. It's a commemoration, it's observance, it's to bring back uh, the memory of what happened on the first one and only Passover. So, you know, like for example... Uh, there was only one Last Supper, but we commemorate and memorialize the Last Supper as Christians through our communion. So we have communion over and over and over again to memorialize the one and only Last Supper that happened between Jesus and his uh, disciples. So the same way with Passover. There's one Passover, happened in Egypt, happened 3,500 years ago, and every time now after that, that that's commemorated is just in memory of the first one that happened. By the way, 3,500 years ago is a long time. And uh, Passover is the oldest continuing holiday or celebration that is still being observed today. It's the oldest of all there are. The Passover is, is the oldest one. And the idea of it, of course, is redemption. We're, we're, as Christine said in the note she sent me, the people were redeemed by the blood. You weren't saved in that first Passover because you were Jewish. You were an Israelite. You were saved because of the blood of the lamb. And so uh, that's what Passover recognizes, redemption, that you're saved. And your your sins, uh, you don't have to die for your sins. Someone else can take your place or something else can take your place. So that's the first one, Passover, 14th of Nisan. The second one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is, guess how long that one lasts? Seven days. Oh, amazing, mind blown. So, and it happens immediately after Passover. So 
Passover is the 14th of Nisan. Unleavened bread starts on the 15th of Nisan, lasts seven days till the 21st of Nisan. And, and even though they were separate things, Passover, Feast of Passover, 14th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the 15th through the 21st, they became so identified together that often they were just one and the same. So you would say Passover, but you really meant Passover and unleavened bread because they were kind of like my birthday and Christmas. My birthday is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And so people would just say, Greg, here's your present for Christmas and your birthday. Here's, here's your present for birthday and Christmas. So they kind, of, they, kind of, they kind of came to be one thing together. So like, you know, I say to them, well, when your birthday's in June, I'm going to give you a brief and say, this is for your birthday and Christmas coming. You know, so. <laughs> But but so, but and but and that unleavened bread is seven days, and that's all about sanctification. It's about trying to become more like God, trying to become more of the person that you know God would want you to be. And so during that whole time of those seven days, there are things like you know you can't have unleavened bread in your house, and there are certain observances and so forth. So that seven days is a seven day time period to try to just concentrate on God and become more like Him. So that's that's unleavened bread. The third one then is called first fruits. And the feast of first fruits happens on the 16th of Nisan. So it happens during the feast of unleavened bread. So you have Passover, the next day unleavened bread, and the middle of unleavened bread you have first fruits. And what would happen is uh they would plant their um you know in Israel they would plant their crops in uh, January, February, because the weather was okay for them to do that. So by the time you got into like March or April, you were beginning to get the first of the first early harvest, which might be usually like it was barley was the thing that, that grew early. And so the idea of first fruits is that you know, they, would, they would bring in that first uh, crop and they would uh, donate that. They would give that to the temple in an offering. And the idea was that you take the first and you don't keep it for yourself. You take the first fruit, the first out of the, the, the ground, and you give it to God. And then you trust God for the rest. And that's kind of the same way that you know, we're supposed to do today with our tithing, is we give to God first and trust him for the rest. So you could, as farmers, you know, there's no guarantee. Our son-in-law is a farmer. There's no guarantee in farming. You know, you plant and you hope. And uh, you never know. There, there are bugs. There's weather. There's all kinds of things that could keep your crop from coming in. So it took a great deal of faith to bring that first uh, harvest in and say, I'm not going to keep any of it. I'm going to give it all to God. And what an act of faith that he'll give, he'll, he'll give me what I need later on. So that's what first fruits. more an idea of uh, the idea of, and also the idea of resurrection, right? From the death of dead land in winter comes spring with new life and new harvest. So you have the idea of resurrection, the idea of faith and that kind of thing. So th- those are the first three the, the, in the spring. The fourth one in the spring is called the Festival of Weeks. And the Festival of Weeks happens 50 days after First Fruits. So 50 days after First Fruits is the Festival of Weeks. This has become Pentecost for us. This is when God sent the Holy Spirit upon believers in the New Testament times. We talked about that in Acts. We were studying Acts last year. And so the Festival of Weeks, 50 days after First Fruits, for us as Christians is Pentecost. For them, at the time, it commemorated when uh, Moses brought the commandments down from Mount Sinai and gave them to God's people. That's what that was uh, recognizing. So those are the, those are the spring uh, feasts. The three fall feasts, the first one is the Feast of Trumpets, which we call today, know it as Rosh Hashanah. It means, like I said, the head of the year for the, it was the first of the year for the civil, uh, their civil calendar. It happens in September, October timeframe in the fall. Uh, it, it's, it, it starts with a, a new moon. Uh, and the new moon is like, a, there's a really slight crescent moon. And back in the day, you know, they didn't have the science that told them, like, you know, when exactly the new moon would happen. So actually, they just had to look and wait for the moon to be right. And they would have people different places who were looking up. This is so neat. You know, they're looking up, waiting for this sign from heaven to know when to start this uh, festival of Rosh Hashanah because the moon had to tell them when it was time. And uh, if it was cloudy, 
you know, you couldn't see the moon. And so they had different people to kind of try to see the moon and know when it was time to, to start it. So uh, it's it's based on, on the new moon. And it's, believe it or not, it's basically just a day for blowing trumpets. That's what it really ends up to be. Uh, they had the shofar, they had other trumpets, that, and it was just a day of like to blow the horn, to give glory to God, and to make a noise for him and um, to honor him. And that was that celebrated on the first day of the seventh month. Tishri is called. So on the first day of the seventh month of the seven feasts that God has given them, and the and all three spring feasts, I mean all three fall feasts, all three fall feasts happen in the seventh month. Seven feasts, seventh month, that's when they're all concluded. Right after, so that's on the first of Tishri. Uh, on the tenth of Tishri, we have Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. And again, like with um, Passover and Unleavened Bread, kind of Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur kind of melded kind of together to become what they referred to as the high holy days, the high holy days of the Jewish religion. And then Yom Kippur is when they have the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is when the high priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and sacrifice the lamb on behalf of the sins of the nation. One time a year, one day a year, and every year that this would happen. And the high priest would go in and sacrifice the lamb on behalf of, to get forgiveness for the corporate sins of the nation of a, as a whole. And that is uh, the Day of Atonement during Yom Kippur. And then the, the last uh, fall feast and the last of the seven feasts altogether is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is called Sukkot. And it's, to, it's on the 15th to the 21st of Tishri, and the month of Tishri. And it's to remind um, the Jewish people of the time when they were uh, uh, wandering in the wilderness and they didn't have permanent homes to live in. They were living in tents as they traveled those 40 years in the wilderness with Moses. They lived in tents. So the Feast of Tabernacles to remind them of a time when they were nomadic and they were living in tents. And uh, the idea of, of that uh, is that you're supposed, as, you're, as an Orthodox Jewish person even today, you're supposed to build a tent, a, a temporary dwelling, not be a tent, but a temporary dwelling and during this week, uh, from the 15th to 21st, of seven days, again, the seven days that the Feast of Tabernacles is, you're supposed to, in those seven days, you're supposed to live in that temporary structure. And uh, my office for where I work is over in um, uh, near Amberley Village, which is a very big Jewish community, as you know. And every year during the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, I drive back and forth all of these homes, these apartment complexes. Many, many of them have built outside their house a little wooden structure. And I don't think they live out there. Maybe some of them do who are more devoted. But, uh, but they spend time out there. They might have their meals out there in the evening or spend the day out there or whatever. But they spend a significant amount of time in these temporary structures. That they, and they tear them down after the tabernacle is over. They put It's like us putting up our Christmas tree. They put their tabernacle, they put their, their tent up or their temporary dwelling up place up uh, during this uh, holiday, during this feast. And this is how they commemorate that. Uh, the idea of tabernacling for us as Christians is that, as you remember, Mike Owen, he did this wonderful study for us through the whole Bible of how God tabernacles with us. And that's the idea that Jesus, we were tabernacle, we will live with him. And so that's the idea of that for us as Christians. So that's the, the over, that's the, that's the context, that's the uh, as we launch in now to these feasts, I'm gonna hope we, I'm gonna try to get through all seven of them um, before we get to Lent. And uh, but this is this is this is this is the context through which this all happens, and the importance of the appointed times God gave them seven is so important, and they all have something specific. So it's a specific reason that God wanted His people to observe these things. If we want to be technical. He never said that we as Christians should not also observe them. So uh, 
we don't, generally speaking, but uh, when God comes, when Christ comes again, his kingdom is set up, uh, we'll probably see these things reinstituted for us in the millennial kingdom, uh, some of them for sure. So, um, holiday like Hanukkah, that's just an added thing? Correct. That's something that came on Hanukkah, Purim. Uh, those are things that were added mm-hmm. by the Jewish people later on because of things that happened. Like Purim was something that happened in history that they're celebrating. Hanukkah is something that happened in history that they're... Was Purim from Esther? Yeah, Esther? Mm-hmm. yeah. right. Yeah. But these are the seven. So that's what I said at the beginning. There are other times that the sacrifices were made for individual people and families and different other observances. But we could spend forever if we got into all that minutia, and I'm not good enough to do that. So we're just going to focus on the seven appointed times that God gave his people and the sacrifices that went along with those and why they happened. And also, ultimately, we want to look and say, well, what does what is the symbolism of that for us today as believers? Because every single one of them has an application for Christ. So that's the cool part. So, okay, that's all I got. So. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom. Shalom.